couple weeks ago, I had this sermon prepared to preach, and then uh, at the last minute, someone was going to be present who had recently gone through a, a divorce, and it just seemed to me that it would be um, <laughs> impolite to preach the sermon. And so I put it on hold for a couple of weeks, and uh, you might look at me and think, how dare you? And I just have to tell you that sometimes you, you, you pray about what you're going to preach, and sometimes you do preach to somebody who's present in the church, and sometimes you don't preach to somebody who's present in the church. But usually, you simply preach what is next up in the text as you're going through a book. And so this week, we're going to go to the sermon that I had written for a couple of weeks ago. Um, now, before I, before I get into the text... Um, I want to say just a couple of things to you, and then I'll, re- I'll return to this at the end of the sermon. Um, when my wife and I lived in low-income housing, and we're not talking Orchard Glen, trust me. <laughs> Orchard Glen is... is, is very different from low-income housing my wife and I lived in. When we lived in this housing, uh, drugs, alcohol, domestic violence, fights constantly. Uh, we once had a woman, Mary Lee's sister, come to visit, and she brought a friend with her, dro- drove out from Salem, Oregon. When they showed up at our, down in our, our parking lot, a man put a gun, a revolver, to the head of my sister-in-law's friend, and walked her in and up the stairs to our apartment with the revolver at her head. We knew the man, and you could almost think he was trying to protect her, except that the revolver was against her head. (laughs) You know? Uh, Anyhow, if you called for pizza to be delivered there, didn't get delivered. If you called for a taxi, taxis didn't come. If you called for the police, the police didn't want to come. And it was really funny because it was put where it was put because it was right in the middle of one of the richest sections of Madison. And so the idea was, you know, we'll mix the poor and the rich and it'll just be bon homie everywhere, you know? <laughs> but there wasn't. There was a tall fence between the poor and the rich, and every pizza delivery man and every taxi driver and every policeman knew the difference between this address on Tree Lane and this address on Tree Lane, you know? Very progressive, very enlightened. And there were two men in that apartment complex named XL and L.A., brothers. And they were very violent men. And one of them had a very violent wife who was built like a boxer, like a wrestler. And one day outside of our apartment, um, he and his wife, actually, I don't know that they were married. They might just have been living together. They got into a fight. And it was a horrible fight, and they had a brand new baby, newborn. And in the middle of the fight, they took the baby and they set the baby on the hood of the car. 
Well, I was watching this fight, and I did my part of breaking up fights there and thinking I was going to die for breaking them up. <laughs> and I'll tell you that story sometime. But in this particular case, there were a bunch of people standing around, and all I could think of was that I needed to get that baby and run with the baby. You know, let them at each other. But the baby wasn't going to stay there. <clears throat> And so I found a time that I thought was a propitious moment. And I picked that baby up, and I was not fat then. And I ran as fast as I could with that baby. And as I ran, I heard footsteps behind me, and so I ran faster. And I didn't stop until I got probably 250 yards away. That's how scared I was. Why was I scared? Well, some of you will recognize from my writing about this particular episode somewhere else that one of the reasons I was scared is that this was the man that held the revolver at the head of our neighbor, and his wife had a revolver in her purse. And the way she was fighting her husband was to swing that purse with a very long handle on it, not short purse, long purse handle. And she was swinging that thing like a bat and bashing him in the head with the purse, but the purse had a revolver in it. And so he was gushing blood out of his head. And this was really a battle that was life and death. It was no small thing. When I finally ran out of breath and had to stop, I found out that the man chasing me was another guy from the apartment complex who was no threat to me or the baby. Why he ran after me, I have no idea, but we ended up having a long conversation. And to this day, my convictions about race in America are the product of the conversation I had with that man then. All right? Now, I'm telling you all this to tell you that a few weeks later or earlier, who knows, by the way, our phone was the only phone that worked in that apartment complex because we paid our bills. And so everybody used our phone, which I would not recommend. And not because of any concern over money. And I'll leave it at that. A few weeks before or after what happened then, the police were called to that man's apartment because of a domestic quarrel between him and his wife. Now, I've told you the one I witnessed. You wouldn't be surprised to know in that case that a police officer went to the hospital with several teeth that he lost and with a concussion. Okay? Which brings me to my point, which is no police officer wants to show up at a domestic quarrel. Now, I'm not going to ask you yet to confirm me in public, but someday I might just ask you to do that. We happen to have a law enforcement officer in, in the church this morning. Why am I making that point? Well, because our text is about marriage and divorce and separation and marital conflict. And I want to start the sermon by saying that when you get involved in marital conflict, there is absolutely no way for you not to become a part of the conflict. Okay? Now, at this point, you're all thinking, well, so what? I mean, fine, that's fine, so what? Well, here's the so what. 
If I were to take the divisions in this church that are here, and I were to say how many of the divisions, the fights, the schisms, the lies, the slander that go on in this church are the product of a man or a woman who are having conflict, lying about the elders and pastors and the older women of this church, it would take care of, what do you think, love, 90%? Certainly 85. In other words, it's not just the police officers who are harmed when people show up at domestic quarrels. It's the pastors, it's the elders, it's the deacons, it's the tightest two women. Because nobody's ever going to say, well, why is your sister crying, Johnny? Well, she's crying because... um, She took my lollipop. She's crying because she stole my gym shoe. My little sister's crying because she didn't get dessert last night. My little sister's crying because you didn't have dessert after dinner last night. In other words, even in a home among children... When you have fights between the children, the children aren't sitting looking at you and saying, well, I just punched her in the face. That's why she's crying. It's lies. Or it's dissembling, which is a lie by another name. Or it's manipulation of the mother's guilt. Every mother has natural guilt, right? In other words, even when you have children that are loved by a mother and a father, and a mother and father try to break up a fight between their children, even in that circumstance, you don't have truth. The mother becomes part of the conflict immediately. I remember once Mary Lee and I had a man come to live with us. His mother was a godly woman in our church, single. Her husband had betrayed her and and abandoned her and divorced her. And then he'd set this young man up in an apartment with money and no parent. If I remember it correctly, at the time, the boy was 13 or 14 years old, and he put him in an apartment with money and was never there and separated him from his mother. So here was this kid. Would you believe that this kid had already done serious time in jail? And so now he's out of jail and he was trying to work for a living and he was facing another trial for a serious crime. And his mother wanted him to have love and care and she asked us if we'd take him into our home. And so we said yes. And there were a couple conditions we had with him, one of which he violated within a week and we had to remove him. It was a very serious violation, I won't go into it. But here's the important thing. He moves into our home, and within a day or two, Mary Lee and I are, like, really fighting. And I mean, she was convinced of her position, and I was convinced of my position. And all of a sudden, we looked at each other, and we said, what's going on here? And then we thought, I'll rename him. Hi, I didn't know you were here. I love you. And so, um, you discombobulated me. (laughs) And so, um, 
we looked at each other and we realized that this man, let's call him John, had set us against each other and both of us were defensive in his behalf, fighting each other. So both of us felt that we were taking his part and that our, our, our wife or husband was not treating him properly. <laughs> within 48 hours, we're like fighting. And then within a few more hours, he has done a number of things so awful in our basement that he's gone. Okay? Now, if you were to talk to him about why he was gone, do you think he'd tell you that he was gone because he did this and this? No way. And do you think that he had us fighting against each other because of the truth he spoke to both of us? No way. Listen, if there's fighting between people and somebody comes in to help, whether it's a law enforcement officer, a pastor, an elder, or a deacon, or an older woman, or some couple in their home, The person that has caused the conflict will not be truthful. Do you understand? It's just, it's a no-brainer, people. And whoever helps to bring peace is going to be attacked. Don't you know this? You've seen people fighting and you've thought to yourself, I'm not going to break this up. Why have you had that thought? Well, maybe because if you try to break it up, you'll end up with blood on you. Now, In the church, 85% of our work is spent trying to deal with conflicts in marriages or homes or relationships of single people that are proceeding to marriage. Does that make sense to you? It's what's in the New Testament. That's why the text that we're reading this morning is in the New Testament. People generally are the same. Can you imagine the pastor of Nabal and Abigail? You ever thought about that? Remember the woman that went with all that wagon train of, of food out to David and his, and his, and his uh, mighty men out in the wilderness? Remember that? You know? Okay, so that's this church. That's, that's every church. That's every city, every village, every home has conflict. And any time somebody comes in to try to heal it, that person becomes a part of the conflict. Now, let's hear the word of God. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, or 10, or 7, beginning with verse 10. Now, remember what's going on here. The Apostle Paul, in verse 1, we're told, had been written by the Corinthians, and they had said to him, Here's some circumstances and some questions related to the circumstances. It all revolved around sex and marriage and divorce. All right? He first deals with the question of whether singleness is an honorable calling in the church. Then he deals with the question of whether or not we should make ourselves vulnerable to sexual immorality in the interest of having a pure celibate life. And he says, no, it's better to marry than to burn. He says, for the sake of fornications, you need to get married. Every man should have his own wife, and every woman should have her own husband. And now, he moves into the question of the married who are having conflict. Okay? And this is the word of God, and it's eternally true. But to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, 
that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, a wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so very practical instructions about marriage, right? Very practical. The Bible is very practical. And what the Apostle Paul starts out by saying is, but to the married I give instructions. So this is for the married. All right, if you're not married and you plan to get married, you can listen, but this is to the married. And then he says this, he says, but to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. Now what on earth does that mean? Not I, but the Lord. Well, he's writing it, right? And then it gets more confusing when you go a little bit forward and you see verse 12, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord. So the first thing he says is the Lord saying it, not him. The second thing he says is him saying it, not the Lord. Do you see that? Now that's pretty weird. And most of my life, I thought that meant that there were different levels of inspiration of scripture. Now, I don't really mean that. It would probably be more accurate to say that all my life I've had this nagging thought that there's something in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that I don't understand and I don't want to think about it. But I want to relieve you of that nagging thought you might have. All the Apostle Paul means here, he's not setting up two separate levels of inspiration in Scripture, the things the Lord said and the things that only the Apostle Paul says, because then what do you have? Well, then you have the Apostle Paul's statements and commands and teaching less authoritative than the things we get directly from the Lord. And that's what every red-letter Bible tells you graphically. But you can't find non-red-letter Bibles. Red-letter Bibles say, have all the words in Jesus in red. Okay? The problem with that is they didn't have quote marks in Greek. And so even the judgment about where it's the Lord saying it and where it's just Matthew saying it, all right, it, it, it's not entirely arbitrary, but it is somewhat arbitrary. So what the Apostle Paul is saying here is, this is a red-letter statement. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not leave her husband. And you think, well, where did Jesus say that? Well, it's when Jesus was asked about marriage and divorce. And Jesus said, from the beginning, it was not that way. You remember that? He says that God made them one, and Moses allowed divorce only for the hardness of your hearts. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's taking Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage and adultery, and he's applying it here to a particular situation and particular questions in the church of Corinth. 
And so what he's saying is, hey, I'm citing Jesus here, not I, but the Lord says this, right? But he's not saying that because that means it's more authoritative. He's saying that because he's appealing to their common knowledge of what Jesus said. It's as if he were to say, you remember the Lord said. But that doesn't mean that when the mother goes on and says, and here's what I say, that it has any less authority than her quoting her husband. Right? And we know that the Bible says that all Scripture is God-breathed. Okay? So then when he goes on in verse 12 and he says, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, He's not saying, this is just my idea, this is just my opinion, and therefore it doesn't really matter the way what Jesus said matters. What he's saying is, there's no quotation from Jesus for me to cite as an authority with this, but nevertheless, Jesus says. So it could say here, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that the Lord says, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever... I remember years ago, there was a liberal Methodist pastor. He used to be a Nazarene, and then he got liberalism and went United Methodist. And he showed up at our church in town, and he came to our ministerial association. And one day in the meeting, he was just really, really, I don't know what got into him, but he was picking a fight with the pastors there. And all the rest of us were committed to Scripture. And so he began to make fun of Scripture. And he began to mock people who held a high view of Scripture. And it was very clear that he wanted an argument, you know. Sometimes people get up on the wrong side of the bed. And so he's going on and on, picking an argument. And probably all of us were tired. You know, we just didn't, didn't want to do it. But then... It just got worse and worse. And so finally, he said, the the thing that got me to speak was he said something like, Jesus never teaches doctrine. Jesus tells stories and shows us how to love one another, but he never, ever teaches any doctrine. And so I said, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I said something like, well, Jesus says that the wrath of God is unleashed against all ungodliness. I quoted some doctrinal statement of one of the Pauline letters, you know. And you know what he said. But that's not Jesus. That's the Apostle Paul. Only he wouldn't have said the Apostle. He would have said, that's Paul, you know. Because every modern man knows that he can love Jesus and hate Paul. That he can claim to obey Jesus while rebelling against the Apostle Paul. And so I said to him, no, 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 that's Jesus. No, it isn't. It's Paul. No, 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 that's Jesus that said that. No, it's Paul. And then I said to him, all scripture is God-breathed. Every word of scripture is the word of God. And I want to burn that into your brains. Your red letters in the, in the Gospels are no more authoritative than where the Apostle Paul says, not the Lord, but I say. <laughs> in other words, you can say that where the Apostle Paul says, not the Lord, but I say, it's the Lord saying, not the Lord, but I say. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because today we are constantly told 
that we can be a judge of Scripture. And that Scripture has a lot of problems that we can solve by cutting ourselves loose from this text and this text and this story and that myth and this fable. As long as we all make a show of loving Jesus. Do you understand that? You just say that you believe Jesus was a good prophet or the son of God. You come out with some statement that sounds good about Jesus and everything's covered. You can be absolutely hell-bent to rebel against all the Pauline epistles. Every specific statement of the Pauline epistles. You can go to church where none of those specific statements are ever given to you, let alone apply. But as long as we all love Jesus and have Jesus in our heart, everything's okay. Come on, guys. All scripture is God-breathed. You may not set up the Apostle Paul in opposition to Jesus. You may not do it. What Paul says, Scripture says. After all, if what Paul says is not what Scripture says, is not what God says, is not what Jesus says, then why did Jesus, all through his life, constantly quote the Old Testament and constantly say, God says? Jesus quoted the Old Testament constantly. He said that scripture may be fulfilled, even down to how his clothing was handled as he was dying. And we are told that even that little insignificant matter was what? Quote, so that scripture might be fulfilled, unquote. So Jesus lived his whole life in obedience to the Old Testament prophets. And don't you think that the Jews wanted to escape Hosea? (laughs) Don't you think they wanted to escape Jeremiah and Isaiah and Amos? We want to escape Paul. They wanted to escape Hosea. All scripture is God-breathed. All of it. Don't be a judge over scripture. Now, as I was preparing this, I went on Google News, and I looked at it this morning, and here's what I saw. I saw, number one, that the CERN accelerator over in Italy, up in the mountains, buried, right? That the scientists have been doing experiments for over a year, year and a half, two years, And finally, they have had to admit publicly that they found a very distressing thing. What they found is that there is something in the universe that goes faster than the speed of light. Now, to me, you know, I don't really care. I'm not a scientist. But what I think is interesting is that the whole world of physics is in an uproar because if what they found is proven to be true, then Einstein's theory of relativity is out the window. And that's shaking them up. And so here's what we're reading about it. 
What we're finding out is that this is from uh, a man quoted in the Washington Post today, Rutgers theoretical physicist Matthew Strassler saying, concerning CERN's announcement, quote, there's a chance that it's a doorway into something fundamental and deep that we don't know about nature. All the great revolutions in science start with an unexpected discrepancy that wouldn't go away. Now look, I'm not a scientist. This is a man who really knows what he's talking about. They've measured the neutrinos, and they appear to go faster than light. They've taken into account the gravitational pull of the moon. They've beat their heads against their measurements. For a year and a half, they have 45 scientists involved in these measurements, and finally they had to release it to the world. And instead of the few hundred people that normally are on their webcasts when they give a workshop, this time there were thousands. All right? Now, what's the point? Well, the point is, why would any of us think that we have to choose science over scripture? I just don't get it. I don't get it. Now, notice, I didn't say why. Listen. Okay, let me give you another example. Global warming, right? This last week, I, wrote it, I, I read an article where they were telling us that they had been looking very hard for the warmth they know has, has, has come to our planet, which they can't find. Now, those of you who have a memory should think punctuated equilibrium at this point. Okay? If you know anything about evolution. Remember, no fossil records, so they come up with punctuated equilibrium. In this case, the issue is that they can't find the heat that's supposed to be there according to all of their models, right? And so what happened was... NOAA, out in Boulder, you know, the National Organization of Atmospheric Research, the federal government funds it, and its headquarters are out in Boulder, Maryland. I lived there for a year, and I found out after the first sermon that, uh, that Colin's dad works there on computers. Uh, so what they've done is they've taken their computers out at NOAA, and they've done um, models, and, and what they announced in the news is that that warmth, that heat that we're supposed to have that we can't find, they think may be down below 1,000 feet in the oceans. No measurement of a thermometer, no submarine going down there, no data that's hard, only computer models. And it's news! Now, all right, you're still not with me. Okay, here's another item. That was earlier this week. This is today. The papers carried the news that Nobel laureate professor Ivar Giver has resigned from the American Physical Society, quote, where his peers had elected him a fellow to honor him, unquote. The society, which has 48,000 members, has adopted a policy statement which states, quote, the evidence is incontrovertible. Global warming is occurring, unquote. But Professor Gaver, Giver, it's hard. I listened to the pronunciation, but 
I don't think I'll ever get it. He shared the 1973 Nobel Award for Physics. And he told the newspaper, quote, incontrovertible is not a scientific word. Nothing is incontrovertible in science, unquote. The U.S.-based Norwegian physicist, who is the chief technology officer at Applied Biophysics Incorporated and a retired academic at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, the oldest technological university in the English-speaking world, he added this, quote, Global warming has become the new religion. I am Norwegian. Should I really worry about a little bit of warming? And he goes on, he says, I am unfortunately becoming an old man. We have heard many similar warnings about the acid rain 30 years ago and the ozone hole 10 years ago, deforestation, but the humanity is still around. I don't know why the definite article, <laughs> the humanity. We used to be man is still around, then it, humanity is still, now the humanity is still around. Maybe it's an attempt to give us dignity. Global warming has become a new religion. We frequently hear about the number of scientists who support it, but the number is not important. Only whether they are correct is important. We don't really know what the actual effect on the global temperature is. There are better ways to spend the money. <laughs> now listen, global warming may or may not be true, but that's not my point. My point is, if you want to figure out how it is that people that have a university education come to judge Paul and to condemn him and to refuse to submit to his commands in the word of God written, it's because they have been convinced that the word of God in nature trumps the word of God written. It is because... They have taken scientists to be their priests. It's because they trust their education more than they trust the Holy Spirit and his book. The book of nature trumps the book of God. And people, you can't do it. You just can't do it. You can't do it because science... As you heard the man say, the word incontrovertible doesn't apply to science. It's a Nobel laureate physicist telling you that. Good scientists will tell you that. It's just like good pastors will tell you that there is a humongous infinite distance between what we say and what the word of God says. Do you understand that? And yet I'll come right around and tell you that when I preach, the word preached is the word of God to you. But does that mean that I think I'm God? No. But listen, every man, every single man, has a foundation from which he lives his life from which he runs his home, from which he runs his business, from which he makes a decision every minute of every day what he will do. And 
You either make your decisions based on the fear of man, or you make them based on the fear of God. And that's why in Psalms, and also in Proverbs, it says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. And so that's your choice. Your choice is either to have a religion that submits to the book of nature, or to have a religion that submits to the book of God. They can't be equivalent. In the Middle Ages, you couldn't have the authority of church tradition and the authority of scripture on the same level, right? Well, today, you can't have the authority of the scientists on the same level as the authority of scripture. And so the Apostle Paul here, when he says, this is what Jesus says, and then he says, this isn't what Jesus says, this is what I say, and you say, yeah, I thought so. That's the Apostle Paul. No! The Apostle Paul speaks the word of God. You may not disrespect the Apostle Paul and be a Christian. You just can't do it. Because you're you're throwing out scripture. You can't do it. Now, what does he actually say? Well, what he actually says is, to the married, the wife should not leave her husband, and if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Now, how's that for practical? This isn't theoretical physics. This is like, this is like nuts and bolts, bread and butter, practical. And what he says is, the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And listen, anybody that's been an elder who actually cares for their sheep, all right, knows that there are some marriages that get so bad that the husband and wife separate, right? This isn't news to you, right? You've all known marriages of Christians where they separate. We've all known it. When I was in Boulder, there was a couple. He had been a pastor of the church. And as I listened in the staff meetings, I found out, I was an intern for a year, I found out that they had separated their house such that he had, I don't remember, she or one of them was upstairs, one was downstairs, and they were not in any communication whatsoever. So it's a pastor and his wife, and they're separated. And everybody knows this happens. And so the Apostle Paul says this. He says, the wife should not leave her husband. Is that clear? When you have married couples, and just just so that you know it, this is our most recently married couple, and she just said yes. The wife should not leave her husband. Okay? I used to brag about my wife's parents, all right, my in-laws, by saying this. If my wife ever left me and tried to go home, she'd never get in the door. And then I'd follow up by saying, and if I ever tried to leave my wife, I'd never get in the door of my parents' home. Does that make sense to you? Those are godly in-laws. The wife must not leave her husband. 
All right. Then it says, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So again, we're dealing with two believers. And what it says is the wife must not leave her husband. But if she does, she can't marry somebody else. She must remain unmarried. And if, and if, you're, if you're on the ball, you're thinking, well, wait a second. She's not unmarried. She's married. But you understand what he's saying. He's saying she must remain unmarried. She may not marry again. She either goes back to her husband or she remains unmarried. And so this is similar to to Moses in the Old Testament allowing divorce for the hardness of the heart. Only thing is, this doesn't allow divorce. This says separation without remarriage is the proper response. Does this make sense to you? And so there are cases where you'll have in a church couples that are separated. Right? Because one or the other of them has disobeyed scripture or both of them, and they're living separately. And what does the apostle Paul say to that couple? He gives them a choice. What's the choice? He says to them, stay separated and don't get remarried or return. And you go, well, but but it's not biblical for them to stay separated and not be remarried. <laughs> I say, come into our elders meetings and help us out if you're so wise. <laughs> I mean, now that's where I'm going to end. Remember how I said I'm going to start and end here? It makes perfect sense when there's a fight of children that the mother or the father gets involved and brings peace to the children. It makes perfect sense that the law enforcement officer is called to a domestic violent quarrel. It makes perfect sense that the pastors and elders and the older tightest two women of the church are called when there is a domestic problem. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go to your shepherds when there's problems. Okay? When we go into those circumstances, typically we spend hundreds and hundreds of hours over many years. Okay? When we do that, don't ever believe the lies you hear about us. The reason you've put Lawrence Howe and Wayne Huck and Tim Wegner and Jeff Moore and Jeff Ewer and Tim, did I say Tim Wegner? And David Canfield and... The reason you've put those men and their wives into office, and I say their wives also because you know when an elder works, he works with his wife, right? The reason those people are in authority over the Lord is they're the ones you trust to come into your home and marriage when you're having problems. Does that make sense to you, right? Does that make sense to you? So then if the people that are being helped go around lying about them, if they tell you that the elder punched their wife in the face and then threw her under the train, And you have a picture of Wayne Huck in your mind. In your wildest dreams, could you imagine Wayne Huck doing that? Now, Joyce, yes. But if you get thrown under the train by Joyce, you deserved it. And more power to her. (laughs) You have to know Joyce. She's from Pittsburgh. 
And so here's what I'm asking from you. If the Apostle Paul can be respected and trusted when he gets down in the nitty-gritty and he speaks specifically nuts and bolts to the people of the church, would you please honor him? Would you please take his word as God's word? Not the psychologists, not the stupid people that write books that get bought, not the people on Oprah. Urgh. Would you please honor Paul, the Apostle Paul? And then, would you please honor those men and their wives who are working with the people that they love, because they love the congregation. I love you people. And trust that we're just trying to help. And if the people we're trying to help, one or the other of them gets spun out of the church, who to thunk? Listen, if somebody's prepared to kiss off their husband or wife, and then they leave the church, or kiss off the person that their boyfriend or girlfriend, and then they leave the church, come on. It's just like, it's just like completely, completely normal. It's very, very hard for us to have our sins exposed and continue to live in the home, right? I mean, this is so basic. We're proud. You may not be, but I am. And I don't want to have to live with the people that know my sin. And so they leave. And when they leave, typically they tell everybody the reason they're leaving is because they were godless in their marriage. And the pastors rebuke them. And so they're proud. And so I left because I was godless in my marriage. The pastors rebuked me. And I'm proud. And so I left. You know, before I die, if you want to give me one gift, and you can avoid the whole bit about marriage problems and, (laughs) you know, and pastors repeating, we could just get to the point where somebody once says, I was proud and I left this church because I was godless and the pastors rebuked me. Do you know that I and my family pray for that for specific names? Whole host of them! Listen, there's a reason I'm preaching this this week, okay? Don't listen to slander. Don't listen to it. The pastors and the elders and our wives don't go around punching people in the face and throwing them under a train. We just don't do it. And if I did do it, do you know what the elders would do to me? Hmm? Right, Adam? Yeah. The wife, it's real clear, the wife shall not leave her husband, right? And it's real clear if she does what? (laughs) It's real clear. She may not remarry or she goes back to her husband. And that's what we do as elders and pastors and Titus 2 women, right, Zebra? 
That's what we do with you all the time. So don't kick us for helping you, okay? Please. Pretty please with sugar and spice and everything nice. Please. Please. Remember what it says in Galatians that the one who's taught should share all good things with those that teach them? And wouldn't that apply to our reputations? That you would actually care to protect the reputations of your elders and their wives? All right, let's pray. Our Father, you see our sin, you see our slander and our lies, and you see our pride, and you see the condition of our marriages. And I pray that this will be a church where the marriages will be faithfully protected by the shepherds and their wives, and where the people will be thankful. Be merciful to us, Father, and protect our unity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.